Keith, thanks so much for joining us. It's good to be with you, Matt. Why don't we start with your background? You know, where did you get started, the arc of your career so far, and then where you are today? Well, I, you know, I started in a place I don't think anyone would have guessed I'd end up where I am now. I fifth generation Idahoan, grew up working summers on the family cattle ranch and somehow got talked into applying to Ivy League universities uh, from Twin Falls, Idaho. I don't think I'd ever met anybody who graduated from, a, from an Ivy League uh, university, but I applied, got a scholarship to Brown. And so I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do that. I had no idea about Brown. I didn't know it was the most liberal and diverse of the Ivy League schools. So you can imagine this Idaho hayseed traipsing across the country and landing at Brown. You know, I grew up thinking I was fairly politically astute and, and uh, articulate uh, for my age. Uh, and I, I got to Brown and for the first six months, I couldn't really participate in a political conversation because I was so far outflanked to the left. All I could think to say is, well, you don't really think that, do you? <laughs> and so it really stretched me um, in, in delightful ways, but it also ended up really shaping both my academic and broader professional career for the rest of my life. I, I was an American history major because I'd always been fascinated by the American founding. You know, the American founders were looking out at a country that had at a world that had 3,000 years and dozens of attempts of self-government uh, that had all failed. And so I really wanted to know, you know, what did they figure out that got self-government to actually take hold for the first time really at that scale or that length of time? And so I had a course with Gordon Wood on history of the early American Republic, maybe the best historian we've ever produced of the American founding, you know, like 22, 23 students. There were two insights in that class that have shaped the rest of my career. So one was how seriously the founders had studied that 3000 year history uh, on the thinking that they had better understand why self-government had always failed in the past and have a better answer for it or else we were gonna suffer the same fate. And I, I was just struck by how much consensus there was among the American founders that the main reason republics always failed is what they called the spirit of party or the problem of faction. They just observed this pattern in history that as soon as you put the ultimate power in the people, then different groups of people form trying to drive the government in different directions. And the contention that would ensue among those groups would make the government so incompetent and unstable that it opened the door for despotism to come back in. So that was the number one problem uh, they were trying to solve for as they crafted the constitution. So that was the first sort of driver for my career. The, the second insight was you know, really what their, uh, what their answer was, which was to erect defensive barriers to make it really hard for any one party to impose their will on everybody else. Uh, so mostly through separation of powers and doing it on a big diverse scale. Um, so I, I was struck by those two things, but there, there was a, a particular problem it felt to me uh, in that solution. And that is if you were gonna erect all these defensive barriers to partisan solutions, purely partisan solutions, well, you needed, it created an affirmative imperative uh, that we have the ability in our country to find and champion solutions wise enough to attract broad support 
since by design, nothing else is supposed to be able to make it through our complicated structure. And coming from Idaho to Brown, I was, I was freshly aware of just how big and diverse this country is. So at the scale of over 300 million people under conditions of great polarization, a country teeming with diversity, how do you ever practically at scale find and champion solutions uh, wise enough to attract broad support? That, that became the kind of burning question for me of, of how do you do that? That has you know, really guided the rest of my life. So it led me, I transferred to Stanford after two years, graduated from there, and then went and got a PhD in organizational behavior and social psychology. Went to a business school at UCLA, went to the Anderson School at UCLA, went to a business school rather than political science or economics, which you might have thought, but those disciplines seem so abstract and esoteric, it just didn't feel like it would give you, you know, the practical traction for how to do this in the, in the rough and tumble of legislative politics. And so organizational behavior scholars working on conflict in for-profit, large for-profit companies seem just more practically relevant. Did that, did, did not intend to be a scholar. I was really more interested in this practical problem of finding champion broadly supported solutions, but had an offer to join the faculty at Columbia uh, coming out of grad school. And, you know, if you're a Twin Falls, Idaho kid, a Columbia professor sounds pretty good. And so I went to Columbia for three years, had a team of stunningly good doctoral students working with me. And we were plowing some pretty fundamentally new ground in the field of the social psychology of conflict and you know, kind of group deliberation and decision-making. Uh, and it, just to say a little bit more about that, rational choice theories had an absolute dominance in the field of negotiation conflict at the time I came through graduate school. And I, I had the audacity to say that I thought the social connections between human beings and their emotions might have something to do with their conflict behavior. <laughs> and that was a really radical thing to say in the, uh, in the mid and late nineties. But the whole field was kind of waking up to that a bit. And so we were doing some groundbreaking work there. Uh, and three years in the Kennedy School at Harvard called and said that they were gonna hire their first ever position dedicated to negotiation conflict resolution. Would I be interested in that job? And uh, that sounded pretty good. So I ended up at the Kennedy School. Uh, stayed there for five years. And, uh, you know, I can talk a little bit more about the, you know, the particulars of the research. But uh, after five years, I was like, this, this professor thing has gone a lot further than intended. I wanna get back to the, you know, the practical work of finding and championing broadly supported solutions and had an idea to do that with a citizens organization, wanted to pilot it at a state level first. And so we went back to my home state of Idaho and I piloted that for five years, uh, 1700 Republicans, Democrats and independents from across the state that joined uh, this organization and worked in the Idaho legislature, passed a raft of legislation uh, that way. I was just shocked by how much traction we got. And so there's some intervening things, but uh, then that ultimately led to getting ready to launch the federal version of that, which is Common Sense American. And as I was getting ready to do that, uh, the National Institute for Civil Discourse called and they said, we, you know, we hear you're getting ready to launch the federal version. We, we really like that program. Why don't you come lead the Institute and bring that program with you and integrate it with you? So that's, that's how I got here. So can you talk a little bit more about the institution then? Um, the National Institute for Civil Discourse, and then also the 
Common Sense American initiative within it? Maybe just broadly speaking, what are they um, and what are they doing? Yeah. So the University of Arizona established the National Institute for Civil Discourse 10 years ago in the wake of the Tucson shooting uh, that, kill, that killed six and injured another 13, including Representative Gabby Gifford. So a, a part of that story that a lot of people don't know is that just two or three weeks prior to the Tucson shooting, Representative Giffords had talked to the University of Arizona about her concerns with declining civility and bipartisanship in the Congress. Uh, the Affordable Care Act debate was raging at that point, and she was really unimpressed by the quality of the debate and uh, you know how much it was being driven by partisan interests rather than kind of substantive solutions to the healthcare questions. And so she was encouraging the university to establish a center or an institute that would work on that. So when the Tucson shooting happens a couple of weeks later, the university was committed that that not be the last uh, chapter in the story. So went ahead and, and founded NICD. And that event gave the university extraordinary convening power. So George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton agreed to be the honorary co-chairs. Uh, Tom Daschle and Sandra Day O'Connor, the kind of operating co-chairs of, of the board and just a really impressive board. Um, you know, originally he's just passed, but um, Colin Powell, Madeleine Albright, Katie Couric, Olympia Snow, uh, just a, a really impressive group of leaders standing up for the proposition that we ought to engage our differences more constructively. So that uh, just celebrated our 10th anniversary uh, of that. And that's, that's how the National Institute for Civil Discourse came into being. And so in terms of its activities, is it mainly DC based and what is it actually doing? Um, in yeah, so we're, we have been, you know, based in DC from the start. It's the, you know, it's the National Institute for Civil Discourse, not the Arizona Institute for Civil Discourse. So, you know, we really needed to be in DC and it was really focused a bit on Congress given, you know, the inspiration from Gabby Giffords. Uh, and so, you know, our mission is to help the country engage our differences more constructively, uh, but with particular focus on political differences and particularly as represented in the, in the Congress and the, and the federal government. So our flagship program is, is the one that I brought with me uh, from the pilot in Idaho and it's called Common Sense American. Uh, and it is, you know, the thrust of that several decades long journey to find practically at scale, how do we find and champion broadly supported solutions? Uh, so it's a, it's a membership organization. We now have over 36,000 members from across the country and political spectrum, balanced politically and geographically in every other way. Uh, and uh, our members have committed 90 minutes per year to reviewing a brief uh, that they get assigned to and then weighing in and then we take those results to Congress. So that's that's the overview. But let me just say a little bit more concretely about how we actually do it. So these 36,000 members, well, before I get to what we do, let me say a little bit about attracting those members. Uh, we are attracting about 12,000 new members per year. We're attracting them at three times the speed and about 15% of the cost that we expected to. Matt, it may be the only thing I've ever worked on in my life that's gone faster and been cheaper than expected. And I think it says something about the hunger uh, in the among the American people for a different kind of politics. Uh, and we do that mostly through social media. You know, I think 
to this point in the digital age, we'd have to say that the forces that want to divide us have used digital tools much more effectively than the forces that want to bring us together. But, but I don't think it has to be that way. And so at NICD, we're committed to leading in terms of thinking about how to use tools of the digital age to bridge the divide effectively. And so social media has actually been a really effective tool for us. So most of these 36,000 members we've recruited through social media, and we have a remarkable conversion rate. So one in four um, people who click on our ad on Facebook, for example, and come onto our website actually end up joining, which is just unheard of for social media campaigns. So we really think we found something that resonates uh, with the American people. And, and it's, it's what we call a, a high hope, low barrier kind of approach. And so if I can just segue a little bit to the, the, the problem of polarization that you have to solve, you know, it turns out that the research tells us that every kind of polarization we can measure, um, you know, distinguish between social, or affective polarization and issues polarization, distinguish between elected officials, those who are politically active and everyday Americans. Every one of those cells, uh, we have record high polarization and it's rising rapidly with one exception. And that is issues polarization among everyday Americans. That turns out to be pretty low actually. In fact, the research suggests everyday Democrats and everyday Republicans agree twice as much on the issues as, as, as they think they do. So they don't know how much they agree. So to us, that was a, a kind of a strategic insight is that um, there's something to leverage there. That if you're wanting to find broadly supported solutions, it's easier to do that among everyday Americans than it is among elected officials who are far more polarized on the issues. Uh, and, but the problem is those everyday Americans are not politically active, right? Uh, the politically active are very polarized. And so it's a special kind of task to try to mobilize everyday Americans in some sort of potent way politically. And that's what I spent, you know, a lot of my career doing is figuring out how would you do that? And, and that's where that low barrier, high hope comes from. So to me, to successfully mobilize everyday Americans, you've got to at the same time, give them a way to get involved that's kind of low barrier. It's not gonna ask that much of them. They're not gonna go spend tens of hours volunteering on campaigns or making political contributions or doing what seem like the obvious ways of getting involved politically, right? They're just turned off by that. And they're not gonna spend that much time on it. But you also have to give them, in addition to an easy way to get involved, a high hope way that you credibly can say, if you get involved, it'll make a difference, right? So that's a hard combination to say, I want to give you something easy and really effective, <laughs> right? And I think that's what we've really found uh, in, in our success in attracting members and having a you know, one in four uh, who hit our website join is that we can you know, within about five or 10 minutes of them on our website, we can have given them line of sight to, okay, here's a way I can get involved. And I think it might actually make a difference. So let me say what that is. If you, you know, if they spend that five or 10 minutes on the website, what they're agreeing to sign up to. And that is that they will take four steps with us to try and find and champion broadly supported solutions. So the first step is 
they choose the issues we work on. We, we work on one issue per year and we curate a list of especially promising bipartisan issues, issues where it looks like there's actually a chance that you could get something done on a bipartisan basis and that it would be meaningful. And then our members rate that list and we pick the issue they rate the most highly. Okay, so, but in, in that case, you're coming up with a curated list from which they're choosing, is that right? That's right. So a top 10 list, and we curate the list mostly by talking to members of Congress and saying, you know, where do you see the possibility for meaningful bipartisan action? We're talking to Republicans and Democrats, and particularly like the Problem Solvers Caucus or the Common Sense Coalition in the House that, you know, that Susan Collins and, and Joe Manchin lead. And, you know, from their perspective, where do you see, you know, some light at the end of the tunnel that you might be able to get something done. And so we take those 10 issues and then our members choose, okay, which one of these 10 would you like to do? So we don't take on, you know, the most polarized issues where it just doesn't look like there's any hope. Uh, so that's the first step. Uh, second step is then we as an organization, as a staff, develop a thorough policy brief on that question that is you know, quite the contrast to how the debate in the Congress is going. We're trying to make the strongest case for and against each proposal, each legislation, the strongest case for each competing perspective, you know, not the kind of straw man uh, sort of thing, uh, and the best available evidence on it. Um, so you've kind so of structured an internal debate among the participants that is structured in a way that there is a, a pro and a con on the, any individual piece within an issue or the issue as a whole? Yes, both and usually, depending on the, on the issue. So for the, the two issues we've taken on, so well, we've taken on three issues so far, two that we've reached completion on, and that the, the first two are surprise medical billing and infrastructure. So on surprise medical billing, for example, there were five major bipartisan bills that had been introduced, all equally bipartisan, but each a fairly different technical way of, of eliminating surprise billing. And so for each bill, we made the strongest case for it and against it and the best available evidence. On infrastructure, then it was basically the strongest case for a big, broad infrastructure package, big in terms of total dollars spent and broad in terms of you know, the kinds of what you would call infrastructure. And then the strongest case for a smaller infrastructure package, smaller in terms of total spend and smaller in terms of kind of what counts as infrastructure. So we did that overall for infrastructure, but then we did that for each of 11 categories of infrastructure, you know, the 11 categories that ended up being in the bipartisan bill. So for each one, you know, so for roads, for bridges, for public transit, for, uh, uh, for broadband, you know, for each one of those, we made the case for a bigger or smaller one. Um, and, and so, yeah, so we've structured the brief to sort of model what you would hope congressional debate would look like, but it doesn't, but we, we capture it then for them in this brief. So that's the, the second step is the brief. The third step then is uh, members then spend that 90 minutes they've committed to, to reviewing the brief and then weighing in. So we have a questionnaire that they complete. So on surprise medical billing for each of the five bills, do you support or oppose it? Um, for infrastructure, here's the 
Senate Republicans proposal, here's the Common Sense Coalition proposal, here's President Biden's proposal, you know, what do you support or oppose? But also some open-ended questions and some more granular pieces on, on the piece. Then the fourth step is we take the results from that survey and we engage Congress with them. And we engage Congress in, in two primary ways. First, our members commit to contacting their own members of Congress and sharing their own views. And it doesn't matter if you're in the, say the 90% on an issue or the 10% on an issue, you still contact your member of Congress and you just share your own views. You're not trying to carry some party line. So it's not an AstroTurf campaign. We're not giving them what to say. They, they express their own opinion because they've really studied it out. Second way we engage Congress is that we as an institute and our staff conduct congressional briefings. So on surprise medical billing, for example, we conducted 150 congressional briefings uh, to share with them the overall national results. Uh, and, and so that both in Idaho, that's what I piloted in Idaho, that's the, that proved to be, I thought surprisingly powerful that, you know, if you had that perspective in, in in Idaho, members of the legislature or on the federal version, members of Congress, if they were hearing both from their own constituents and from us with the overall national results, that, that just ended up being a surprisingly compelling proposition to champion broadly supported solutions. And, you know, both on surprise medical billing, you know, we were actually successful. Our first issue, we got it passed and on infrastructure, just, just barely you know, got that done. And, you know, of course, it's always a cast of many when uh, an act of Congress has passed. Uh, but I think on both issues, you know, major players would see us as having been an important player in that. And we're, you know, we've been running that program three years. So that's a pretty good track record for as young a program as we are. So, I mean, in terms of the, before we get on to the actual results and, and how you were using those in Congress itself, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the structure of that dialogue when uh, the when, you know when your members are, are are contributing information really on either side of an issue now can you talk a little bit more about how that works so is it everybody just gives their opinion on something and then you synthesize the result or is there a back and forth to where there's a potential for people to change minds yeah to this point the the basic version is a simply you review the brief and answer the questionnaire independently. And then we just aggregate up the results and say, here's what they are. And that felt essential to me as the fundamental design to do that, you know, low barrier, high hope sort of thing. So if you're an everyday American, you're not going to eat, sleep and breathe politics. Uh, you, you know, you need something that's pretty simple and easy to do on your terms. So that you commit 90 minutes per year, and then you usually have a couple of months, you know, once the brief is ready. So you get to do it at a time or place that's convenient to you on your own computer or your own, you know, device. Uh, it, it, you know, in a country of over 300 million people, you can't say, well, let's all meet down at the local high school, you know, Thursday at seven o'clock, right? So uh, in the most basic element of it, we wanted it really simply just to do it on your own time, at a you know place that's convenient to you um so that we could really do it at a big scale that we could get thousands and thousands of americans now it is our ambition and we we actually 
piloted this with infrastructure to also have an optional component where you could actually come together with other members of Common Sense American who have studied the brief and have a little deliberation. So along with partners, about a dozen uh, other organizations in the bridging uh, world, we had a America Talks infrastructure uh, event um, just a month or two ago. And in that we had a video platform and people answered a questionnaire in advance about their views and then we matched them. So we had diverse groups and broke them out into small groups. We had about a half hour introduction to it. And we had uh, Senator Portman, uh, Kelly and Cassidy, you know, have say a few remarks and then broke them out into groups where they discussed it uh, and then came back at the end and answered a, a questionnaire. Um, and that's that was our pilot of it. It was quite successful. So we'll, you know, we're building out the ability to do that on an optional basis if you'd like to collaborate with others. And, you know, we'll be doing more ambitious measures of how much difference does that make. But but a couple of things, Matt, from that pilot that were quite interesting. I should have had these numbers at my fingertips. Um, but I think we had 78% of the participants uh, ended up finding more common ground than they expected to find with others. So, you know, that misperception we have that we're more divided on the issues, you can begin to overcome that misperception if you're actually talking to real people uh, and it's like, oh, geez, that wasn't that hard uh, to do. And that, that feels like important in and of itself uh, to do that. And it may actually improve your deliberation. You may, you know, the brief will do a good job of capturing competing perspectives, but there's something, you know, additionally powerful about a real person on the other side sort of making that case. And so we'll add that as a supplement. Great. In terms of the questions you asked on each issue, right? And again, this kind of goes back to when you're when Congress is considering a bill. You know, in my mind, a bill is a combination of a problem and a solution, right? It's identifying a problem. Um, in this case, it sounds like a, a, the problem that was commonly felt to be a problem, whether it was congressional reform or infrastructure. So the problem is already there and identified to a certain extent. Uh, and there's agreement that there is a problem. Then when it comes to the solution, you know, there are many different ways to look at a solution's, you know, validity or which, which solution you find is more attractive or less attractive. So you could, just like the CBO scores each bill in terms of its cost, any individual or any member could score a bill or a, a solution on many different, any, many different ways. You could say, is it constitutional or not? Is it, you know, does it impact my values positively or negatively? Does it, how much does it cost? You know, what are the unintended consequences? You know, you could, in theory, you could structure a list of hundreds of questions and then have them answer on either side, or you could just ask one, say, do you support or the bill or not, you know, or how much money would you put in? So how yeah. did you go about that question? Because I think that in my mind is really the critical piece of, of, of getting people to think and break down a problem and a yeah. solution in a way that actually brings value to the debate. Yeah. So the, the two questions that we always ask are, do you support or oppose? So it's just like you're voting in Congress. It's a binary. You have to choose whether you're going to vote for it or against it. Whatever your reasons, whatever the multi-dimensions along which you evaluate it, you got to come up with a decision of whether to vote for it or against. So, you, you know, we force them 
to say I support, we do give them strongly support, support, oppose, strongly oppose, but we don't have any, I don't know, you know, it's like, you gotta, you gotta make a choice. And then we ask an open-ended question so that they can't, you know, cause it would be hard to fully ask all the questions across all the dimensions along which people might be scoring that. So we just asked an open-ended question about why, you know, why you think what you think and what would you most like to say to your member of Congress about that? So they can kind of go where they want to. So those questions we always ask regardless of the issue. And then depending on the issue, um, we will drill down into some other things that, that are the dimensions along which Congress is particularly interested, right? That it might influence it. And so, uh, you know, or we think that bringing the perspective of what a big group of everyday Americans who have gotten informed on this have to think might make a difference. So for example, on infrastructure, uh, you know, it, the debate that really ended up sort of taking over, you know, is this sort of meta debate that's not strictly related to infrastructure, it's on the, on the linkage with the reconciliation bill, right? And so, the Congressional Progressive Caucus is saying, yeah, yeah, we like the infrastructure bill and its merits fine, but we want to leverage it to get what we want over on this other bill. So we won't vote for it until we get what we want on the reconciliation bill. And then Republicans had their own version of linkage and saying, oh man, we hate all this tax and spend stuff that Democrats are going to do on the reconciliation bill. And if they're going to force that through, then I'm going to vote for infrastructure. Not that I don't like the, the infrastructure bill itself I like, but I'm going to, you know, so members of Congress are all coming up with scoring that has nothing to do with the infrastructure bill, right? But is driving the debate. And so we asked our members, said, uh, you know, we drilled down with three questions. First question was, do you agree or disagree that the infrastructure bill should be considered on its own merits independent of the reconciliation bill? 89% uh, support uh, for that. And then we drilled down even deeper on the, you know, with a Democratic and a Republican version of the linkage. So I said, do you agree or disagree with Democrats in Congress who say they will not vote for infrastructure without getting what they want on the reconciliation bill? Uh, I think those numbers were uh, high 80 percentile uh, opposed. And then we, we drilled down among our own members, we're balanced politically, and we asked, we just looked at, of our Democratic members, 75% of our Democratic members disagreed with Democratic linkage. Then over on the Republican side, we asked, do you agree or disagree with Republican members of Congress who say they won't vote for infrastructure unless the reconciliation bill does not pass? And again, we had overwhelming, I think in the 70s, opposition to that. A little more support among the base of the Republican Party. There was a narrow majority of Republicans who supported Republican linkage, but swing voters, we dived down and swing voters were really opposed to it. So, you know, we asked that question and, and I had a, a piece published in The Hill the morning of the House debate highlighting those results. And, you know, I think that was helpful that only six members of the Progressive Caucus ended up voting against infrastructure and 13 Republicans ended up voting for it. And that, you know, that was helpful. So we'll drill down um, uh, you know, on surprise medical billing. 
there were particular features of the bills that we asked her to hear about. So depending on the, the issue and the kind of terms of the debate, you know, what the debate seems to be resolving on, we will ask more specific questions. So, you know, that's, that's very interesting and very illuminating, you know, in terms of the base that you've got and the way they are interacting and the way that they're providing information. What about in terms of when you brought that information to the members, right? Because really what you're providing in this case is a decision support system for the member, right? You've done a lot of work, you've synthesized information from constituents, more or less, and you've, you've make, drawn some conclusions from it. Obviously, you've done some analysis. How did you present that to the members? Did, were you able to say, look, this is a representative sample of the, your districts, or this is a representative sample of people who are not typically represented? You know, how did you kind of quantify what was coming in to them? You know, because on, on the one side, they're getting Twitter, right? And this has magnified a certain segment of the population, and they maybe think everyone thinks the way this right. Twitter thing's happening. And here you are with this message. You know, Twitter has the incentive to make it look like everybody thinks like what's on Twitter. They want you to think it's universal. Right. How do you represent your constituencies that are contributing information and how representative it really is? Yeah. So, you know, we do, we typically do half hour briefings with a, a member of Congress, their staff, uh, you know, because of the pandemic, most of them have been on Zoom like this. And then I just literally share the screen. I don't know if this works for your platform, Matt, but I, I could just share my screen for a second and show you exactly how we did it. Sure, let's try it. Yeah, because uh, the concept of representation, in my view, is very critical for members because members get a distorted input from their membership, right? And even physical interaction, they can only interact with how many people in their district a year. And exactly. Who you know, and, and are they really understanding the, the problems and solutions for that district? And so we've talked with some previous groups on the program who've done town halls where they've tried to create more virtual town halls where there's a more representative population engaged in that town hall. Yeah, like um, Mike Nevlo, a friend of mine that's, that's done good work. That's on right, that. yeah. But, there, but there's still some real, difficulties with scale on that. right and so this is you know an attempt to do it so let me i think i've got this lined up let me share my screen so here's the results uh on surprise medical billing so the top line results so you know these are the five bipartisan bills that have been introduced and uh this is you know the house ed and labor bill got 81 percent support uh the house uh Energy and Commerce Committee bill got 56% support. The Senate Health bill got 55% support. The House Ways and Means 35% support. So, you know, we just present the overall, but before we've done, you know, we've gotten to this point, we've just introduced the organization and who these members are, these 34,000 Americans, 36,000 Americans now, and what the political breakdown is, which is, you know, even Republican and Democrat. With Did you show them by their districts, so whoever you were talking to, or? Uh, we haven't done that yet, but we just have gotten to a big enough scale that we start to have meaningful results. And, um, you know, we really are trying to lead in the technological age of, you know, how can you practice self-government in the digital age? We are now, you know, we've got a, a Google Data Studio and all of our data pulled into it. So the next issue we do 
you'll be able to filter for your congressional district and also filter for Republican, Democrat, Independent, or you know, in a variety of ways, so you can slice and dice the data for yourself, uh, so that so that you can see it. But that's that's how. And then, you know, we drill down on the different component parts, and then you know, here's we pick the representative kind of open-ended responses, and sometimes they record videos for us, and so that'll give you a feel for how we present those results. Yeah. So there, you're you've moved a little bit to the storytelling aspect of it. Um, you know, I think that's, that's very difficult for the politicians typically to deal with statistics. Uh, they're much more responsive to these kinds of stories. And that, that itself has a, has a problem because, you know, stories can have an outsized impact. Right. Uh, compared yeah, so to we have the advantage here of, you know, thousands of Americans who have weighed in and then, it, you know, it's a, terribly labor-intensive process and you know you need to have been trained in qualitative research methods to do it the right way but we'll pick you know good representative samples uh, of those open-ended uh, comments but but then do that storytelling so if i i'll just share my screen again for a second i'll just highlight a bit of how we do it so on surprise billing uh for example i would uh, you know, I would say, you know, so there's the top line results, but, you know, it really comes alive what everyday Americans think about this if you look at their open-ended. And one of the themes you really see in here is the word choice um, of Americans for describing surprise medical billing. So, you know, um, uh, you know, just look at some of the word choices. It's unethical. Um, I haven't done these briefs in a long time, so I'm not, I'm, uh, I'm, not as uh, as quick as I was, but you know, predatory in nature, and bait and switch, and uh, you know. So I highlight the word choice to say people really feel pretty hot about this at the idea that you can be treated by an out of network provider without your knowledge or consent, and then they can just charge you whatever they want, and you're legally obligated. You know, they feel really passionate. So it is this combination of some pretty sober statistical results having you know read all of this data and then we will do a little storytelling with it we we try to be responsible and accurate with it but we do realize the persuasive punch that it brings well, great well let's move on to the 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 congress itself uh and you know the dynamics happening there now you know i have a question later about debate dialogue etc but you you've spent a career thinking about this um and can you talk about your perceptions of the way Congress debates, you know, yeah. dialogues, speechifies, you know, what's the state of play now? How has it gotten to where it is and um, yeah. you know, where should it go? Yeah. You know, the many dimensions of that one might focus on here's one of the ones that I think is most problematic. And, and that is uh, how the debate is affected by which issues make it to the floor to be debated. And there's been a real shift over time in that, um, that uh, increasingly it's driven by leadership and it, the bill hasn't come through regular order through a committee process. <clears throat> and what makes it to the floor is increasingly driven by leadership's judgment about what's useful politically, uh, not so much about what's a good solution to the problem. <clears throat> And I think there's there's two big uh, 
fairly structural long-term changes that have happened in our country that have led to that change in deliberation in the sense that we've moved away from regular order deliberation in committees to really issues chosen because of their partisan usefulness to make it to the floor. The first big long-term systemic change is the ideological sorting of the parties, right? For almost our entire history in this country, we've had this kind of admittedly odd circumstance of ideologically mixed parties. There's been a mix of liberals, moderates, and conservatives in both parties. And for an odd set of different historical reasons at different points in our history, our parties have been fairly scrambled ideologically. <clears throat> that started to change really in earnest in the late 1970s. And I think, you know, Poole and Rosenthal's data on this is, is the most definitive data on it. But uh, they really show that starting in the late 1970s, you see a growing, uh, growing party line votes on roll call votes. Um, and they've got a method so you can go all the way back to the first Congress, <clears throat> excuse me, and look at it. <clears throat> Sorry. And, and if you look at that record, it shows that we broke the record for party line voting in around 2016. And but but more concerning is that it's a 40-year trend line, you know, started since the late 1970s. So there's been other periods of peaks, spikes in party line voting, and then it's tended to come down about as quickly as it spiked. <clears throat> We've never had another period in American history that's a 40-year trend line of rising uh, polarization in Congress as measured by, by party line voting on roll call uh, bills. Uh, so, you know, we used, we used to have conservative Democrats, we used to have liberal Republicans. We don't have that anymore. And so, that's one piece that has changed that leads to that leadership taking over and what gets chosen to be debated about. The other, you know, I think Francis Lee has really done the best work on this is the kind of insecure majorities part is that not only are we, are the two parties more ideologically divided than they've ever been, but we're more closely divided also. And so, you know, the, the, the balance between Republicans and Democrats has been so close for a number of years. So <clears throat> if you're a majority, as Francis Lee has pointed out, you're <clears throat> really insecure. It, you know, it's easy to lose that majority. So you're thinking primarily, how do I hang on to the majority? So you're thinking about how an issue plays in the next election and what issue can I use to beat up on the other side, which is very different than solving it. In fact, it's often really not useful to solve a problem politically, because you want to stir up your base for it. Or if you're in the minority, you're just this close to being a majority. And so you don't want to give the majority a victory. You know, we can't solve this problem. And so I think that those deeper changes in our political structure, really the two-party system, have are the primary first order effects that have led to the erosion of the quality of the debate and how partisan the debate has become in the United States Congress. And, and to me has really rendered the Congress 
much less effective as a problem-solving decision-making body. The, the, the goal really isn't as much anymore to come up with a good solution. It is what will serve us well in the next election. And I think those are the fundamental things. There's a lot of second and third order effects, I think, that follow on that and exacerbate the problem. But I think those are the fundamental ones driving. And would you say that this is driven by this concept of party being kind of a stronger rule-based organization, right? I mean, you know, to me, it sounds like the strength of the party has increased to the point where its importance has superseded the importance of solving problems for the nation, yeah. right? Uh, even though there are a lot of people who say that the parties are weaker now than ever before because of these primaries and they can't control the primaries, et cetera. So what is your perspective on that? Yeah, I, I, I think it's fair to say parties have be, um, partisanship has become more important, right? Whether you, the elites have control of the party or the grassroots do, ignoring that, um, what the party thinks matters a lot more now than it used to. Um, and, and so there's that perspective. And part of the punch that it's given, I mean, the story that I've told so far is a, a little bit of a, of a cognitive kind of judgment on issues and ideology, right? They, 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 the party sorted ideologically. That wouldn't have packed nearly as big of a punch though. Uh, as then the social sorting that followed on. So the ideological sorting among political elite starts in the late 70s. It starts to filter down uh, to the everyday Americans, you know, so conservatives and liberals are sorting into the two parties more. But then in the 90s, we started to get a social sorting. Uh, so in the, you know, like in the 1960s and before, if you knew whether someone lived in a rural or urban area, if you knew how often they went to church, if you knew what their race was, it told you almost nothing about their party. Today, it's highly correlated. So we've stacked various social identities on top of each other aligned with our partisan identity. So we now our ideology, you know, what kind of neighborhood we choose to live in, how religious we are. And that's given it a much more tribal kind of feel to it. So it makes it less of a policy debate and more my tribe is the good guys and that tribe are the bad guys and we need to defeat the bad guys uh, kind of a thing and that's that's really poor for substantive deliberation on a policy question you know we just don't get good policy debate that way so in terms of this you know whether you have highly polarized congress or not right there has to be some kind of in theory there should be some debate going on Right. And the structure of the debate will matter, just like it mattered for your uh, common sense American work. Right. Yeah. How can you structure the debate to get the most out of it? Right. To create the most valuable information and create substantive decisions, yeah. uh, regardless of how polarized the Congress is. You know, are there tricks? Are there procedures? Yeah. Are there ways to make it work? I would, I would point to, to there, there's a bunch of things I think that are meaningful that one could imagine actually happening, but um, I would, I'd focus on two particular buckets. And let me just give the background for why I pick these two. 
congressional reform is actually the third issue that we've done as Common Sense America. And so we've looked, we look primarily at the Select Committee on Modernization of the Congress um, reforms, the 97 uh, recommendations they made in the 116th Congress. So we did a brief on those that included the arguments for them, but also you know, the leading arguments against each of those. And um, and so I'm I'm sort of channeling what thousands of Americans thought when they looked at the Select Committee's recommendations. And, and there were two um, particular reforms that really stood out there. Um, one are category reforms. One is uh, having to do with committees. So we had lots of different measures that could foster better bipartisanship and kind of civil substantive discourse across the divide. Um, a number of those are sort of committee oriented and there's a, you know, there's a variety of them that uh, committees have more informal kind of planning sessions of you know, how to organize on a, on a given issue and you know, what the rules of debate will be of picking issues you know, to work on. Um, committee seating structure, you know, like the select committee, you do Republican, Democrat, Republican, Democrat uh, sort of thing. Um, hiring bipartisan staff for committees, you know, there's a whole host of having retreats, you know, so they get to know each other as human beings. There's a whole host of those uh, kinds of reforms and, and almost all of the committee based reforms really got broad support among uh, our everyday Americans and among experts we were consulting with as we were building out the, the arguments for and against each of these. So let me let me make that case for why committee level reforms are what uh, matter. Um, you know, particularly in the House, 435 members. That's just very hard to have a good debate at, at, you know, at that size. It's just unwieldy, pro, particularly when we've got polarization and you got C-SPAN running and you know they're playing to the cameras. So you, you, it's gonna be very hard to get good floor debate with 435 members, particularly as polarized as we are. Much more doable to get good debate at a committee level. The committees themselves on the House side particularly have gotten really large. So you, you, know, you almost have to talk about subcommittee level where you get more to a meaningful sort of effective groups, you know, and I, you know, I was taught back before I was a recovering you know, academic, when I was an actual academic, and, you know, effective groups are typically between four and nine, right? And so subcommittees, you start to get closer to that. But it's also that that's where policy is supposed to be formed. They are <clears throat> able to get some expertise on the particular policy, They, you know, that's why we have a committee structure so they can, uh, you know, have a division of labor there and, and develop some substantive expertise and deliberate with each other. And so if you can foster better bipartisan deliberation um, at the committee level, it's much more consequential because it, it leads then to good problem solving in a much more direct way. So we think the whole host of reforms around committees and subcommittees um, are particularly important. Now that does beg the question of there's so little, you know, what's called regular order anymore. And, and 
that's a broad term for essentially that ideas have to get introduced in committee, get vetted, get marked up, they, you know, they get improved, and then they come to the House floor, which is rare anymore. And so, you know, part of what we have to solve is that we can get back to regular order, and it's not just leadership um, pulling issues forward that are useful to them politically. But assuming that you can do that, I think there is quite a bit at the committee level that, that we can do. So that's one set of category of reforms is, is those committee reforms that will foster bipartisanship and civility uh, better. Second big category is the congressional schedule. Uh, you know, most Americans are pretty shocked to find out that Congress really functions from sort of a Tuesday afternoon to Thursday morning schedule. And that's a change. You know, it used to be that you moved to Washington when you got elected to Congress and you were here. And that had a couple of important implications for debate. One was for, one is for bipartisanship. So because you lived here, you know, you often would get together on the weekend for a backyard barbecue with someone who might be across the aisle and you got to know each other's spouses and kids. And so you knew each other as real human beings. Um, that is much less so that it, it, the relationships among members of Congress across the partisan divide are so thin from a human relationships perspective anymore. And part of the, part of the reason for that is the schedule has impoverished that. And, and so that's made the quality of deliberation poorer. But it's not just the kind of bipartisan rapport, it's also just the amount of time you have to spend on it. And, and Tom Daschle, our co-chair, really kind of schooled me on this. You know, he's saying, look, big complex legislation, if it's good and you're gonna build the consensus, takes months and months of sustained attention. You simply can't get it in these short snaps and then you go home and then you come back. You know, you gotta be able to build on it. And so that also impoverishes it. So the, the reform that came out of our results, there's been different versions of this, but uh, from, you know, the thousands of Americans who are weighing in on our congressional reform brief, a two weeks in session in Congress, two full weeks, Monday through Friday, one week back in the district, uh, Monday through Friday, you know, reduces the travel time significantly, really increases the amount of time in session where they have an opportunity to actually do that regular order in committees and, you know, really get substantive and have quality deliberation and actually increases the time they have back in the district some too, is saving time from, from traveling. So that would be another big reform. Let me, if I can, let me just add one third one that's just so obvious. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't think it would need mentioning, but it does. Uh, the, the freshman orientation, you know, these days for much of it, the Republicans get on a bus and go to one place and the Democrats get on a bus and go to another place. Our, the support our members had overwhelmingly is, my gosh, when you're orienting them, they've just been elected to Congress and you're teaching them how to do their job and the, you know, the basics of it. Could you let them at least get to know each other that way? That, that's another obvious reform I think that's needed. What about the terms of like the concept of civility? You know, you, you have members on the one side, they should be working on issues. On the other side, there can be personal attacks from one they aren't related to the issues. They're just attacks on other people, presumably because of issues, but could be they just don't like each other. Yeah. You know, how does this play out 
in your experience and what can be done to kind of curtail that kind of activity since it doesn't seem to have any kind of practical use. In fact, it's negative, right? For the functioning of the institution. Yeah, for the functioning of the institution, it, it is clearly toxic. Um, you know, you, you, there's no way that you're advancing, improving the quality of the solutions that we might pass by, you know, insulting each other. Um, and, and so clearly it's not. And so it really has been unfortunate, particularly in recent years, it seems like just in the last few weeks, right? We've had a number of those uh, be in the news. So it is unfortunate there. I, I think this one is um, it's pretty hard to fix. And the problem is that while it doesn't work for deliberation, it works really well for election purposes. And so I, I want to go back to that ideological and social sorting point that I made. You know, there's always been a, a strategic question that a member of Congress faces politically of how much you play to your base and how much you play to the center, right? And you could just as a matter of pure strategy, you could build a case for playing more to the center, you know, or across the divide or playing to your base. And in, in most periods in American history, there you could have a kind of genuine debate about that as a purely political strategy. As the parties have sorted ideologically and socially, um, it has become much more effective as a strategy to play to the base rather than to play to the center, right? Um, so if you're wanting to mobilize people, particularly under conditions of polarization, especially social polarization, stirring up the negative emotions of fear and anger of saying, you see those people over there, they're dangerous. You need me to defend you against it. That's really potent. You know, nothing stronger than the negative emotions for motivating human behavior that is what i was known for when i was a scholar is is the power of negative emotions to drive human behavior particularly in conflict situations um so you know it, post uh you know, if you're a representative gosar and you post that video of aoc he's undoubtedly going to make a ton of money that way political donations by doing that um, and, and it may actually work for him politically that, that he can continue to get elected that way. The problem is that once he gets elected, then he has to swear an oath to a constitution that was designed on purpose by the founders so that you couldn't govern that way, right? It is a constitution designed against purely partisan measures. And so, um, if there is a way of winning elections, it's, a, it's effective for winning elections to play that way. It's very hard with norms or rules to overcome those incentives, those really hard incentives. So um, you couldn't just have a rule that said, if you attack another member, you're expelled. I mean, the, yes, the I, house I, can expel you know, people, right? So I'm just curious, are there any institutional mechanisms that could be leveraged? Yes, and I, and I think, while noting the limits of it, that doesn't mean I wouldn't try to do it anyway and, and get as much leverage as you can from that. Um, uh, but I, I, yeah, I do think that there are norms and, and you know, there's some level of this already. And, you know, Representative Gosar got censored. He didn't get expelled, but he got censored. I, 
I think expelling, you have to be really careful in a system of self-government, you know, you really have to err on the side of the people make the choice ultimately uh, of who they do. So uh, overturning, you know, if you expel someone, you're overturning an election. And that, that I, I think you have to be really careful in a system of self-government. There can be other sorts of discipline and a censor removing somebody from the committees like happened with Representative Gosar is one place to do it. But have we really advanced it when it's done on a purely partisan, you know, it wasn't purely partisan, the censor of Representative Gosar. I think there were two Republicans that voted for it. But um, will that long-term improve the debate? I, I don't think so. In the past, censors, you know, when, when a member of Congress has been censored, uh, had a censure, um, they've been pretty bipartisan. And so, you know, that's, then it's quite effective. Um, you know, Leader McCarthy was not very outspoken about Gosar on this and, the, you know, the vote was pretty partisan. Um, you know, we, this other one that we've had of, uh, you know, Representative Boebert and Representative Omar and that kind of tiff of, you know, the video of Representative Boebert kind of talking in an anti-Muslim way of assuming that, you know, Representative Omar might be a terrorist with a backpack and a bomb uh, in the elevator. Um, you know, uh, that also had that problem, but that's kind of interesting because Representative Omar, you know, herself kind of got outside the norms back in 2019 and said some things and tweeted some things that were considered to be anti-Semitic. And it was the Democratic leadership who said, hey, that's not okay, telling one of their own members. And then she apologized unequivocally for it. So it's always most effective if the parties themselves discipline their own members. And uh, neither party, both parties are getting worse at doing that. And I, I'll just say Republicans right now are got a little more of a problem with that even than Democrats. And so, um, so I, those are all the challenges for doing it. But I, I, I do think that um, it would be worth a try to provide a little more granular code of conduct for Congress that you could agree on in the abstract outside of one particular instance, right? And, and you might even wanna say, this won't go into effect until the next Congress. So we know that we're not talking about any particular instance and it's, it's not retrospective, right? It's just going forward. And in the abstract then, um, I think that you can agree on codes of conduct uh, that then you give some more enforcement mechanism to it. it, it there are some bright lines that you should be able to draw. Um, let me give you one kind of compelling example of this. Another program of ours at NICD is we do workshops for state legislatures. It's called the Next Generation Program. And we'll do workshops on civil discourse for entire state legislatures. And it, our methodology there is kind of interesting there's almost no didactic teachings of what the best practices of principles or civil discourse are, where we come in and say, we're the experts on civil discourse, let us tell you how it's done, right? Which rarely works with the legislative body very well. So this is a program that was uh, designed by and delivered and is delivered by state legislators themselves. We, we train state legislators as facilitators for this program. 
And the way we start it is we say, okay, we're going to have, you know, it's a four hour workshop. And to start the discussion, you know, we're going to talk about some difficult topics and, you know, what's been, would have been some examples of poor civil discourse in the legislature and stuff. So we want to have some sort of rules for our discussion today to keep it constructive. So uh, what rules would you suggest? And we just lead a group discussion and we write them down, right? And then they take those into the breakout sessions where they have these typical ones. And then we have a Republican and a Democratic former legislator or current legislator from another state, Republican, Democrat, co-facilitating these small group, you know, like 25 or so, as we have these tough discussions. And if it veers off track, then they say, hey, that violates this rule that we came up with. We don't tell them what those rules should be, but they almost always come up with a pretty good list of what we would consider best practices. Like, no ad hominem attacks, you know, don't attack the character of the other person, don't interrupt, you know, listen, all those sorts of things. So that's in a legislative session, you know, in a legislative context of state legislatures that we find it very easy to get agreement on standards of conduct. And so I do think that you could get more granular and the select committee of modernization of Congress is, is considering some of these sorts of things, but you could get more granular on codes of conduct for Congress and, and get agreement on it, bipartisan agreement, and then a little more agreement on uh, enforcement and discipline for it. I mean, it seems to me that 1% a year isn't bad to kick out, right? I mean, that's not, yeah. it's not, it's not a big, not a, and they can always elect somebody new, right? Yeah, right you have a special election, elect someone new, yeah. So I, I think it's not surprising that you would have four or five people that would have to go each year. I mean, I don't know why that's not a sort of a common practice. Yeah, well, Matt, I think if you if you ask most Americans, is there at least one percent of Congress a year that deserves to be kicked out? I think you'd get an overwhelming yes. <laughs> that was a fair point. Right. Well, uh, I think you'd like to move on to some other questions I've got that uh, you know that I ask all of our guests. If you're ready to move on to that that round. Sure. Uh, you know, the, this is related to what you just mentioned, but uh, what do you think congressional representation should mean? Yeah, I think that that does have, a, a, it's a question that plays a little differently in our day than it has in the past. And I think one of the things that I would say is, you know, it's pretty fundamental, but you're elected to represent all of the voters in your district, not just the members of your party. We're not a parliamentary system. So is it all the voters or is it all the constituents? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's practically and probably should be all the voters, but um, you know, you've gotta be looking after kids' interests and you know, non-citizens as well, certainly. Um, but the distinctions between citizen or non-citizen or voter or non-voter don't matter nearly as much to me as the distinction between member of my party or not a member of my party, right? That's, that's what people are really keen on. And, and that being elected in your district doesn't give you license to beat up on members of your own district who have different views than you. And so that's where we're really, you know, when we had more ideologically diverse parties, then uh, representatives and centers senators more broadly you know represented their broad swath better than they do today and so that's that's the major part and it, and it gets to this kind of question of bipartisanship 
how do you define bipartisanship? And is it measured by the roll call vote in Congress or is it measured by the degree of support of everyday Americans? Um, because of all the reasons we've talked about, because members of Congress are so much more polarized right now and are, are playing along such party lines and roll call votes are so party line these days. Uh, I think that's become a less viable kind of operational definition of bipartisanship. And it's gotta be a little bit more what the average everyday Americans think, but the traditional polling on that is a terrible way to take stock of that because really the truth is most everyday Americans haven't thought about, don't know that much about a particular issue. So no surprise that we, you know, we think that the common sense American approach, where you've got thousands of Americans politically balanced who have each spent 90 minutes or more really getting good information and then weighing in, you know, if 70, 80% of, of our members are in support of something that is bipartisan, that has broad support, and that probably should be able to get traction in Congress. If so, it's but, less than that, then it shouldn't. But if we go back to the concept of representation, and in the, in the question to really is about your own personal view, right? You said it should be everyone in the, every, all the voters at least in the district, whether regardless of party. Um, and you see, so you've come down on that side of things. How about in terms of the, the role of the representative? Should they be voting the beliefs or should they be making judgments about what they think is in the best interest of their district? Yeah, it's sort of the, the trustee or just the, you know, the kind of automaton of, of your thing. Yeah, I, you know, I, don't, I tend to not be very doctrinaire on coming down hard on one side and that is kind of a dichotomous it's a, it's a spectrum, I think. And I, I don't think it's good to be on the extreme either way on that. I mean, obviously it's not self-government, it's not representative government if you aren't in some way informed and constrained by what your constituents want. Um, and yet it, it can't be, it, it is representative government, it's not direct democracy. And, it, you know, none of us as everyday citizens have a chance, have the time to really get sufficiently informed and develop expertise. And so there are things that as you spend more time on it and you get to know it and you understand they're realistic, it's like, ah, I might have thought of that, thought it that way as an everyday citizen, but now I understand this. And I, even though my, my vote, my constituents won't like it, I need to vote this way. There's got to be room for that, I think. So I'm, I'm, moderate on this, like I am on most things, I guess, it, it, you know, there's some intermediate sweet spot there. Got it. And in terms of and, the, and you know, that, that fundamental insight of the founders of have a Senate and a house, we've got one body that is supposed to be more of a trustee type and one body that is most supposed to be more directly representing the people, you know, that's built into our constitution that we have a mix of both. And I, I think that makes good sense. And how about the future? You know, you mentioned it's the current voters that are the key constituency rather than the future, future voters. Yeah, well, you make a very good point here. And, and you know, the, the concrete manifestation of why that's an important distinction to draw, I think is the debt and deficit. It seems like the one thing that Democrats and Republicans can agree on is that is we should spend more than we're bringing in. Right, that, that we can get bipartisan agreement on, and uh, 
and so that works for this generation and not very well for the next generation. And so, you know, that is a, clearly a problem. Uh, you know, how you fix that concretely is difficult, I think. It does push you a little bit more towards the trustee end of it, I think, um, that you may have to take some hard votes to say, hey, there's some things we got to do now to restore some fiscal sanity so that we don't leave our kids in a total mess. Next question is uh, about, you know, how would your ideal Congress allocate its time? And it sounds like you've already had a recommendation about two weeks on, one week off. Is that where you come down personally, or do you think they should spend more yeah, time? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that's quite right. There, you know, there's also recommendations for three weeks on, one week off, or one week on, one week off. I, I think the two weeks, one week is the best kind of combination that, um, that's practically feasible. Uh, and, and so, and it, and it does really save a lot on the, if you crunch the numbers without getting into the complexities of the analysis, it really does save a huge amount of time and money um, from travel. And so uh, I, I think that really does do it. So it's that more time in session. <clears throat> Uh, and then I think uh, more time in committees, you know, that there's more time for the committees to do their work. Right. Next one is uh, how should debate, deliberation or dialogue occur and be structured in Congress? And I think you've already answered this. You said it needs to be done more in committees and a little bit more behind closed doors as well. Is that where you come out? Yeah, I, I think so. I do think that there are, <clears throat> you know, there's a couple of reforms that uh, the select committee has looked at that got good endorsement from our members, like having more space that's outside of C-SPAN and other things where they can have those private deliberations that are a little limited on that. Um, so I do think that's right. I'll again come back to this, um, how much, how we pick what issues come forward affect the quality of the debate on that issue. And if you're picking the issues not to solve them, but for, for partisan purposes, then you know the quality of the debate is not gonna be very good. So it's, it's upstream in the issue selection that you can really improve it. And um, I, I will mention the, um, you know, the Problem Solvers Caucus and a couple of others, issue one and other groups did this really good work, um, you know, in the transition from the 115th to the 116th Congress, where they had a set of demands of some reforms before they would vote for their speaker. You know, the Problem Solvers Caucus did this in the 115th and said, here's a set of reforms we want. We don't know who's going to have the majority in the 116th, but whoever side wins, you'll withhold your votes from speaker for speaker until you can get this. And the, and the Problem Solvers delivered on that and got a set of reforms through. And one of my favorites is uh, the consensus calendar. So now <clears throat> if you have 270 co-sponsors, then you have a route to the floor uh, vote. And you know, at 270 co-sponsors, you know it passes already and you can't get to 270 without it being bipartisan. So it's just this incredible backlog of all these bills with 270 co-sponsors or more that can't get to the house floor. You know they'll pass, it's just an outrage. And so there was a institutional reform that allows the co-sponsors to invoke that if they have 270, that it gives you a route. I don't think it's actually been used as much as I think it should. And I think there's some more along those lines that 
would make sense to do that if you have broad support in terms of co-sponsorship, that those get a fair hearing, I think would improve the, the deliberation debate. Can I go on maybe one more, Matt, on kind of institutional reforms that will improve the quality of debate and that, you know, the whole on the Senate side of uh, cloture and filibuster, uh, you know, and the strong debate on this. And again, I'm going to say I've been educated mostly by Tom Daschle on this, and I, I think he's really got it right, and, and others have. I wouldn't eliminate uh, the filibuster rule, you know, that it takes 60 votes to close debate, but I would change it so that you have to hold the floor. So when cloture got introduced, it, it, you know, which is a fairly modern invention, it's not in the Constitution, it didn't get used very often. And it's, and it's really only in the last couple decades that it's got used more. And we changed the rule, the Senate changed the rule, so that you didn't have to do, do what they call holding the floor to maintain it, right? You actually had to be there on the floor speaking uh, to, to hold it. And that really discouraged us doing it. And so I think if it's used less frequently, um, it can play the role I think it should, which is saying, hey, we really should be about broadly supported solutions here, not narrow partisan solutions. Uh, and, and defined that way, the way it originally was, I think helps that. And then, and then the quality of the discourse goes up that we really are engaging each other more honestly when we know we kind of have to, to get anywhere. I think that would be a good reform. Um, next question is, maybe you've already addressed it, but what fundamental institutional improvement should Congress make within 50 years? The only other one I, I think I might mention beyond the ones that we've already talked about is kind of bipartisan staffing you know, the, the staffing is a lot more partisan now. And so on committees and, and uh, that you have staff that have to be hired on a bipartisan basis. And I, I think there's probably a role for some partisan staff, majority and minority staff, but I think that the lion's share of the staff should be bipartisan and doing good work for members of the committee, whether they're in the majority or the minority. Next question is what book or article most shaped your thinking with respect to congressional reform? Yeah, I've kind of probably also already tipped my hand on this a little bit. Um, you know, Tom Daschle co-authored a book with Trent Lott, um, uh, Crisis Point, uh, Why We Must and How We Can Overcome Our Broken Politics. Um, it's probably funny for a former Harvard professor to say it, but, um, you know, I think the academy really can be a source of good original ideas and can kind of vet them empirically in some ways. But the, how well you can vet them empirically is limited in terms of how it will really work in the, in the Congress. And so I think turning to people who have actually done it, you know, Lot and Dashiell were the last leaders when there was a 50-50 Senate. And uh, so I, I think that it's a, Congress is a complex place procedurally. And so I think some of our, you know, I think that's actually been a, a, a pretty good one. I, I will say also though, I, I, uh, Francis Lee's uh, Insecure Majorities is awfully good. Great, well the last question is really about your plans. You know, what do you have in the short term and what are you looking to do in the long run? 
Uh, in the short term, so for, we'll be picking our next issue in 2022. So we're just starting to put together our top 10 list. We kind of have to wait until the reconciliation bill is done because there's so much in that thing and you don't know until you know what happens there. You don't know what's left to do. Uh, so we'll, we'll pick that. You know, long term, our aspiration is really to grow Common Sense American to hundreds of thousands, you know, over a million members. And I think it is we are on the two first issues that we did, we're two for two so far, we're batting a thousand. We're actually batting better in the American Congress than we did in the Idaho legislature in the pilot, which shocks me. Um, you know, but we've been careful on our issues that we've picked. I think as we grow that, and if that's hundreds of thousands and million, you know, a million members, one, the power of the voice, right? It's just a much more powerful force in the Congress. And so you can take on tougher and tougher issues, I think, and make a difference. It's also a little bit, your, you know, a point you were asking about appropriately. At the larger scale, then you give a big enough sample for a given congressional district. And if we have, you know, these tools of the modern age, good data tools, and they've got a good, you know, dashboard, and they can slice and dice it in different ways, and they can see what their own constituents think about it constituents who have had a chance to get fully informed. We, we really think that elevates and informs the debate uh, then. So simply growing our, our membership is kind of the long-term thing we're really working on. Great, well, Keith, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure and uh, best of luck with uh, all these fantastic initiatives. Matt, it's been good talking to you and, and it's been a great series. Thanks for what you're doing on this. Thank you.